Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we're going to conclude our discussion of Al-Mu'tamid's long and deeply transformative reign. Having already covered the principal threats that faced the Caliphate, we can now turn to the considerable challenge of tying everything together. When we're done with that tall order, we'll discuss topics we haven't had a chance to bring up, describe Al-Mu'tamid's succession, and close with a brief reflection on the consequences of his divided administration. Episode 77, His Brother's Keeper. At the very outset of our discussion of Al-Mu'tamid, I made a passing remark about how I considered him to number among the Anarchy's caliphs. These Abbasid figureheads were deemed unworthy of having an episode named after them, and they were also denied their own little intros. Although we'll highlight Al-Mu'tamid today, don't take it as a repudiation of that original assessment of him as a trivial figure. The uninteresting caliph will struggle to hold our attention and we'll thus devote a considerable portion of our time to a discussion of the realm instead. We'll flit around, first geographically, then chronologically, to attain a sweeping evaluation of the caliphate, and shine a spotlight on any important developments that we haven't been able to fit in so far. Let's start with the caliph, more to get him out of the way than anything. Al-Mu'tamid's given name was Ahmed and he was born in the early 840s, probably a year or so before his more dominant brother, Talha. Our sources have nothing on his upbringing, so we'll have to fill the blanks in ourselves. He was around five years old when his father was suddenly made caliph by a council of powerful officials. Although he wasn't al-Mutawakkil's eldest, the promotion must have had a material impact on the young Ahmad's day-to-day. What followed would have been a life of luxury, and after 14 years on Easy Street, the anarchy kicked off. He was about 20 years old. We find nothing specifically about Ahmed during those nine years. Like most politically viable Abbasids, he was forced to reside in Samarra under varying degrees of state surveillance and control. He was in his late twenties when Musa ibn Mughaz's forces defeated his cousin al-Muhtadi outside the capital in the summer of 870. We're not told why he was chosen as the successor, only that it was Baikabak and a commander named Yarjuj or Yarjuj who selected him. I misspoke last time when I said the anarchy had claimed Baikabak's life. He actually passed away shortly after it ended, and Yarjuj succeeded him as overlord of Egypt and Syria. While we are on the subject of last time, I had also mentioned that not everyone agrees a major was Ibn Tulun's father-in-law. Many say that was Yarjuj, but I suppose there's no reason why Ibn Tulun couldn't have married both their daughters. Either way, the governor of Egypt had connections to the very highest echelons of Turkish influence within the Abbasid state. Musa ibn Bugha wrote to Talha right after he secured Samarra 
and the latter instantly made his way back to the capital to take up the mantle of command. From then on, it was an epic, multi-front war for Abbasid survival with Talha at the helm. The few mentions we find of al-Mu'tamid all describe him as self-indulgent, though not quite on the same scale as his wealthier predecessors. He had neither an elaborate harem nor expensive toys and pets. Instead, he mostly whiled away the time gorging himself on food and drink. Despite all this, now that al-Mu'tamid had become caliph, plenty of administrative decisions were automatically attributed to his office, whatever required the caliph's seal, like confirming top officials and governors. I find the claims that al-Mu'tamid was behind these appointments to be dubious, and believe the caliph was little more than a figurehead forced to rubber-stamp whatever he was instructed to. Considering history's low opinion of al-Mu'tamid, perhaps it is best we abandon him as our subject and take a look at his reign instead. He had the second longest reign of all the caliphs we've covered so far, falling just one year short of his great-grandfather Harun al-Rashid's record 23 years in charge. The caliphate had been transformed a multitude of ways over that period, and one of the simplest and most effective ways to wrap our heads around all that change is to just take a look at the map. If you go to the episodes page on thecaliphs.com, you'll see what the caliphate looked like at the end of al-Mu'tamid's long reign. I'll describe it to those of you who don't think they'll make it. It's a large map of all the lands the Arabs had ever conquered in light green, with a small dark nucleus in central and southern Iraq, and a thin dark strip around the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. The dark green is where the central government had any actual influence. Everything else was held by some other local power. It's really shocking how small a piece of the caliphate belonged to the Abbasids, even after two decades of post-anarchy recovery. You can see large swaths under Tulunid, Safarid, or Karajite control, then smaller powers like the Zaydis, Shaybanis, Armenians, and others. I want to take this opportunity to say a few words about some of the independent dynasties listed on this map that we didn't get a chance to cover in our discussion thus far. I'll start with Sindh, around modern-day Karachi. The last time our sources mentioned the province was during al-Mutawakkil's days. Arabs who had immigrated to the region generations back feuded along tribal lines, and eventually the Habbaris came out on top. Omar al-Habbari was appointed governor in 855, and he went on to rule his province for 30 years, as did his son and his grandson after him. The Habbari dynasty attained de facto independence after its links with the caliphate were severed during the anarchy. It never comes up in our sources again. Another important dynasty in the east can be found in the map's top right corner. The Samanids were appointed as governors of Transoxiana beyond the Amuldaria just before the Thaharids were invested with overlordship of Khurasan in 820. The Thaharids kept them on throughout their time in charge, probably because of how good they were at their jobs. The Samanids took great care of the cities and populations they governed, earning the loyalty and obedience of the local people. They were still subordinate to the Thaharids, 
and Samanid armies did serve at their pleasure when the need arose. The Samanids were allowed to raise and keep powerful armies because they were responsible for guarding one of the Ummah's most dangerous borders. Nomadic Central Asian tribes were a constant threat, and Samanid forces raided their lands on a regular basis. The men they captured would routinely be sent to the Abbasids in Iraq, where some went on to reshape the caliphate. It wasn't just distant lands that managed to maximize their autonomy during the anarchy. The province of El-Jabal, Arabic for mountain, in western Iran, had been ruled by the same family since Harun al-Rashid had first empowered their patriarch, Abu Dulaf, back in the early 9th century. The Arab Dulafids naturally sided with Al-Amin during the Great Fitna, but quickly bowed out of the fight when Ibn Mahan's army was defeated by Tahir. They rebuilt their relationship with the Abbasids after Al-Ma'mun returned to Iraq, but the anarchy alienated them once again. Talha's final campaigns, undertaken in the early 890s, were against them, so our mapmaker is right to list them as an independent dynasty. There are a couple more even smaller statelets, like northern Mesopotamia ruled by the son of al-Shaybani, or Azerbaijan under Ibn Abi Saj, which are listed as independent for good reasons, but we're not going to get into them today. The main takeaway is that the once hyper-centralized state had fragmented into some very tiny pieces. So now that we're done with our quick geographical tour, let's do a chronological speedrun through the 22 years Al-Mu'tamid was nominally in charge to condense what we've covered in the last three episodes. When he came to power in 870, the seeds of all three existential threats to the state had already been sown. Ibn Tulun was in Egypt, the Safarids were rulers of Sistan, and the slave rebellion had just exploded in Basra. The gravest of these was by far the third. The rebellion in Basra was a direct challenge to Abbasid rule. It took a while for Talha to appreciate its gravity, and the inadequate armies he sent against them in the first few years were a waste of men and money. The campaign he led in person didn't meet with any success either, and the slave rebellion grew stronger as its defiance of the caliphate attracted more brazen mutineers to its ranks. 875 must have been an especially tough year for Talha, as all three major threats converged. The rebellion had expanded from Basra into Khuzestan and was now installing governors and taxing cities in the province. Ibn Tulun started stirring up drama by sending more of his taxes to Al-Mu'tamid to curry favor with the caliph and make a name for himself. Meanwhile, the unbeaten Safarids had deposed the Tahirids and were coming for Iraq next. Talha's victory over them in April 876 marked a real inflection point for Abbasid power. It neutralized a distant enemy and allowed the caliphate to focus on the more local one. Ibn Tulun took advantage of the Abbasid preoccupation with Iraq and he grabbed all of Syria in 878 without eliciting a reaction from Samarra. The Abbasids managed to turn the tide against the rebels by concentrating all their efforts against the insurrection in 879, 
though it took about five more years to truly extinguish that threat. As Talha was on the cusp of this victory, his brother attempted to go over to Ibn Tulun's side. To be fair, the move wasn't entirely unwarranted. Al-Mu'tamid was kept in relative luxury, but he had no say over most aspects of his life. The 40-year-old caliph betrayed his brother while Talha was recovering from a near-fatal wound sustained on campaign against the rebels. It didn't go as planned, and he was dragged back to Samarra and forced to denounce the governor of Egypt. He may have reconciled himself with his lot in life, as we don't hear about any further attempts to escape his gilded cage for the last nine years of his reign. Ibn Tulun passed away shortly after that failed gambit. Talha decided to divide the caliphate's armies and wage war on two fronts. He sent his son Ahmad to wrest Egypt from the Tulunids and focused his own energies east instead. Although he'd reached a settlement with the Safarids after Yaqub's death, he really begrudged them control of Faris. Honestly, if either had given up the province, the Safarids and the Abbasids could have had a very different relationship, but neither party was interested in accommodating the other. Talha enlisted the Dulafids in his fight against the Safarids this time around, but their attack ultimately flopped. Some narrations claim he managed to push them back into Sistan, only to realize the futility of preventing them from retaking it all, while others say the coalition couldn't even take Fadis. In light of these two failures, his in the east and his sons in the west, it's clear Talha made the wrong call. Perhaps if he'd left well enough alone with the Safarids and personally took charge of the campaign against Egypt, he could have retaken the province. The opportunity presented by Ibn Tulun's death had been squandered, and the Abbasids now had to live with the enemies they had failed to vanquish. The late 880s were thus a time of geopolitical recalibration for the Abbasids. They accepted Tulunid claims over Egypt and Syria, and recognized Safarid control over Greater Khorasan. With this, the Caliphate had fully come to terms with its new reality. No longer the all-powerful empire it once was, it was content to be the formidable master of Iraq, capable of extracting tribute from nearby dynasties through either the acknowledgement of its primacy or threat of force. It was a considerable downgrade, but it was also workable, well-grounded, and a great base from which the dynasty could hope to rebuild its influence. Let's move on to the topic of succession. There were four main characters, Al-Mu'tamid, his brother Talha, and their respective sons, Ja'far and Ahmad. Al-Mu'tamid's son Ja'far is the only one of the four who hasn't come up in our discussion so far. He's mentioned only twice before now in Al-Tabari, both times as a notable attendant in official functions, like Yerjuk's funeral, for example. Unlike his cousin Ahmed, he doesn't seem to have ever held military command, and his role was probably restricted to court. The first time succession is mentioned in our sources is in 875, 
the year we're told Al-Mu'tamid formalized his plans. He designated his son Ja'far as his heir and appointed his brother Talha as steward until the boy came of age. I can't find a birth year for Ja'far, but since Al-Mu'tamid and Talha are close in age, let's assume he was roughly as old as his cousin Ahmed, around 17 or so. The caliph followed this document with a declaration that effective immediately, Ja'far would be the super-governor of the western half of the caliphate under the tutorship of Musa ibn Bugha, while the eastern half fell to his brother Talha. According to this schema, both Abbasids were supposed to report to the caliph, who held ultimate responsibility for the entire realm. Anyway, while al-Mu'tamid was allowed to announce his designs, he didn't have the authority to enforce these decisions. Therefore, Ja'far never administered any lands and Talha never reported to his brother the caliph. The whole thing existed exclusively on paper. Succession remained irrelevant for the next 15 years, and it wasn't until the early 890s that the issue received any serious attention. Talha's health had deteriorated rapidly, and in June 891, he returned to Baghdad for what would prove to be the final time. He had imprisoned his own son Ahmad there two years earlier. And while no narration explicitly lays out why, it seems like Talha's unchecked power got to his head. He had no reason to mistrust his son, and despite the objections of a large chunk of the army, he had Ahmad locked up in Baghdad in 889 after a falling out between the two. Ahmad was allowed to visit his father on his deathbed, and his popularity among the officers made his return to captivity unlikely. Now that their master lay dying, they looked to his son Ahmad as his only possible successor. We're told that the vizier and a couple other members of the administration tried to contain his influence by supporting the caliph and his son, but they were no match for their opponents. He was declared the heir to his father in all things, including his spot in succession. This didn't make any sense, though. He couldn't be his cousin Stuart because they were probably the same age. So in 892, the succession arrangement was amended to make things crystal clear. The caliph's son, Ja'far, was removed, and Ahmad became al-Mu'tamid's heir, plain and simple. He assumed his uncle's role the very night the caliph gorged himself to death in October 892. There are a couple more developments to mention before we close out our discussion of al-Mu'tamid's reign. His succession highlights just how prominent his brother Talha's role was in all things, and it's worth taking the time to assess the impact this divided government had on civil and military administration. We'll start with the armies, which were entirely in Talha's hands. But just because they weren't divided didn't mean they were left unchanged. You may have noticed that not once did we mention the Magharba or other non-Turkish armies during al-Mu'tamid's reign. While these forces never quite measured up to the Turks militarily, they came to play an important role after the proxy fitna created divisions within Turkish ranks. Talha must have dissolved any non-Turkish contingents because they simply never come up again. 
This was probably one of many concessions he made to the Turks to ensure that they felt secure in their positions. He relied on their leaders to such an extent that their names fill our history books and podcasts, and a handful of them, like Ibn Tulun and Ibn Abi Saj, eventually started their own dynasties. Talha's son, Ahmad, received a battlefield upbringing. He remained in his father's shadow until he was old enough to lead his own campaigns. This ensured he had a strong relationship with the military, which, as we heard, came in handy when it was time to determine the issue of succession. While it might seem like al-Mu'tamid's failure to pass power to his own son was an extension of his general impotence, Ahmad would have never been able to usurp his cousin without a strong personal relationship with the armed forces. It was unfortunate for Jafar, but an auspicious sign for the future of the caliphate. Another consequence of the unusual arrangement between the Abbasid brothers was the return of Baghdad to the fore. The caliph had to stay in Samarra to keep the troops at ease, and tensions between al-Mu'tamid and his brother meant that there also had to be some distance between the two. Talha used Baghdad as a base for many years, though it would be misleading not to add that he used other cities as well, and that one sprang up around his military camp when he went south to fight the rebels in Basra. But Baghdad was different. Not only was it the old capital, but with the downfall of the Tahirids, the city was in bad need of a new master. Being the powerful Abbasid that he was, Talha naturally filled that role, making Baghdad the de facto caliph's de facto capital. There's one last outcome of the competition between Talha and Al-Mu'tamid that we should mention. We'll introduce this issue in more detail next time, but it's worth noting that the split at the top had a deep impact on the civil administration. The role of vizier was both traditionally and functionally close to the caliph. Talha's status as de facto caliph effectively split the role, and Talha's secretary, the man in charge of the military's finances, oversaw the vizier, whose job it was to make sure revenue was collected properly. This may not seem like a big deal now, but we'll watch it evolve into a bureaucratic rivalry that had ruinous consequences for Abbasid power. All right, last call before we reflect on Al-Mu'tamid's performance. There are still a couple minor changes I might as well mention while we're here. The first is Tarsus, which was lost to the Tulunids. It wasn't taken by force. Its governor, Yazaman, was serious about fighting the Byzantines, and he eventually realized the Tulunids were just better partners for that. He allowed them to join the raids, and after he died in one, his successor recognized them, making the province Tulunid once again. The second minor change was in northern Mesopotamia, where Al-Shaybani's son succeeded him, then managed to oust Ibn Kundaj's son and maintain autonomy for a while. A final minor change was Sajid Azerbaijan, founded by the son of Abis Saj after his ouster from Mesopotamia by Ishaq ibn Kundaj. Muhammad ibn Abis Saj governed the province on behalf of the caliphate at first, 
But after he had enough power, he declared independence and adopted his people's ancient noble title of Xin. I fully understand that bringing these developments up this late and this briefly makes them seem so unimportant that you're unlikely to remember them. But I can live with that. It's more for the sake of completeness at this point. Al-Mu'tamid's reign brings to mind a hackneyed hypothetical. Is it better to be the star player on a losing team or a bench warmer for the champs? It's easy to be dismissive of his time as caliph when it seems like a stuffed pillow would have done as good a job and spared everyone the moody betrayal drama. He certainly didn't contribute very much. But the caliphate recovered nicely during his tenure. Shouldn't he get at least some credit for that? Would we have been more impressed if he'd played an active role but ended up making things worse, even if it was through no fault of his own? Suppositions like these are tricky. It's best not to engage further and just think about what's in our sources. I don't believe a more assertive caliph would have been helpful, not with Talha around at least. It's unfair to hold al-Mu'tamid to the same standards as the other leaders of the Ummah, as his circumstances were compromised. He was an anarchy caliph after all. A figurehead whose name was picked out of a hat by Turks to further their own ends. If you'll accept this distinction, then we should compare him to his peers, al-Musta'in, al-Mu'taz, and al-Muhtadi instead. He towers above them by virtue of an achievement none of them could match. He met a natural end. I guess it's a bit of a stretch to call gorging yourself to death natural, but it does beat the others, assassinated, tortured to death, and killed in battle, respectively. Al-Mu'tamid wasn't much of a caliph, but he was the right man at the right time. Just over 30 years after Al-Mutawakkil's murder, the situation in Iraq had finally stabilized once again. It took a lot of blood and treasure to accomplish, and none of it would have been possible without Talha. His unique profile as a Abbasid trusted by the Turks gave him the opportunity to reforge the bond between the ruling clan and its armies. A task he accomplished so well, the reins of power were practically thrust into his son's hands the day Talha passed away. That apple didn't fall very far from this tree, and next time we'll begin our journey through its tenure together, here on the Caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power. <laughs>